This is the Fenway Rundown, the premier podcast for all things Boston Red Sox. You know, people harp on the last place thing, but essentially what's important is the record. If the Red Sox want people to start thinking the ownership cares, then maybe they should talk. This is the Fenway Rundown, brought to you by Mass Live. Here are your hosts, Chris Cotillo and Sean McAdam. It's a Friday edition of the Fenway Rundown podcast, Mass Live's Red Sox show. Chris Cotillo and Sean McAdam here for our third and final episode of the week. And we have our second special guest of the week. It is Zach Scott, former Red Sox assistant GM, worked in the organization for about two decades, and a guy that I think more than most sports executives really tells you what he thinks and tells you how things you know work. And I think he's a very good guest, uh, and we appreciate him coming on. As we take an insider view of the Red Sox organization... Dot, dot, dot. Sean, how do fans take an insider view of our coverage on Mass Live? Well, funny you should ask, Chris, but they can do that by joining our insider text program, which enables them to communicate with you, with me, with Chris Smith year-round, preseason, during the season, off-season, postseason, you name it. It's the perfect way to stay current on all things Red Sox and Major League Baseball And all you have to do is text the word JOIN to 617-751-6257, then click the link to subscribe. We provide you with a free 14-day trial period. We think we're pretty sure you're going to like it, and then it's just a mere $4.99 a month to uh, stay involved with us, have some fun, provide some questions, get your questions answered. A repeat guest on the Fenway Rundown today. Uh, we had him last offseason, and people loved it. So decided to go back to Zach Scott, longtime Red Sox assistant GM and executive, former acting GM of the Mets, and the founder and CEO of Four Rings Sports Solutions. You can follow him on Twitter. I think one of the more illuminating Twitter accounts or X accounts right now going at Zach Scott Sports. Uh, some pretty interesting Peeling back of the curtain that you've done in the last couple months, and I know there's more to come, and we'll touch on that, Zach, but we appreciate you making your second Fenway Rundown appearance. No, it's good to be back. So you spent a long time with the Red Sox, obviously, uh, and still follow from afar, have friends in the front office, all that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so your perspective has changed, but now looking at where they are right now in this so far underwhelming offseason – just what are your impressions overall of how they're operating at this point? You know, the moves have been Giolito in, the Sale trade, the O'Neill trade, and the Verdugo trade. I think fans are, are disappointed and waiting for the shoe to drop. But just as your, you know, external but extremely uh, informed imp- opinion, what do you think of what they've been able to do or and really what they haven't been able to do? Yeah, I mean, it's, I guess, a couple caveats at the start. One, yes, I do have friends there, but we, I don't bother them with anything related to uh, what they're doing. So I don't, you know, anything I'm kind of talking about is really just my opinion and and my observations from afar. Um, And the other one that I'd say is that, you know, obviously Craig Breslow is new to the position. Um, I think that's always a tough thing for a person going into their first off season, um, especially, you know, Craig's moved pretty fast, pretty rapidly. So um, you know, there's a lot that happens when you're going to a new organization. I've only experienced that one time. Um, and it was, it was a lot. Now mine was different. I started, you know, much later in the off season, but yeah. So I, I do think, you know, 
to some degree have to cut him some slack, but at the same time, you know, that's ownership decided to make a change there. And so that's what they have to, to go with. So, um, you know, all that aside, just kind of looking at what they've done so far this off season. I mean, in general, I feel like it's been a slow off season for the industry. Um, so, you know, there's still some, some big names out there. I think part of where maybe they took, had a misstep was, you know, I know this has been much talked about. It's just kind of the, the rhetoric um, that was put out there by the organization early in the offseason, you know, managing expectations wasn't done very well by saying, you know, we're going full throttle, whatever that may mean to them. Um, so you set this expectation. And I think, you know, they were in from all reports, they were in on Yamamoto. Who knows how aggressive they were? I have no, no clue. Um, but, you know, I'm sure they were trying to do some things. And just weren't able to do it as is that as that can happen every offseason, especially when you're talking about big name, right. you know, big time Japanese players who often, you know, geography is a big part of their decision and they probably don't have that in their favor. So I, I think there's I'm sure they set out with some loftier goals for the for the offseason compared to what they've accomplished now. And they're, you know, they're, you always start with the plan A and then you have plans B and C. And I don't know where they happen to be. But, yeah, I can understand um, fans maybe be a little frustrated or impatient. I think that's probably from a trend that's been happening over the last several years. And obviously at any time, the longer, you, the farther, the further you get away from a championship that always tends to happen. So, and in that time, they've had a lot of change and leadership and not a whole lot of stability at the top. And so there's a lot of issues there, but yeah, it's been, you know, I still think there's work that they could do to make the team more competitive. I do see people kind of, putting out there they think the team is is awful i wouldn't say that they're awful i think they're in a tough division and they're probably uh in a similar spot that they were last year in many ways um you know i saw uh, someone had tweeted out a vegas line of 80.5 and to me that felt around the right number i guess if you know they'll know when bets start coming in over and under that line but yeah i i get it i get why people may be frustrated um you know what I don't know and what I'm curious about is kind of where they've set the payroll target. Um, there doesn't seem to be a lot known about that. When I was there, I know it was always a moving target. Um, it wasn't, and I think this is true. Of most teams, you don't, a lot of owners, it'd be nice if they just say, hey, here's the number and here's what you got to work with. And that doesn't always happen. Uh, it can move depending on opportunities that come up and things like that, which ultimately typically is a good thing, but it's hard to know where they're at. And, you know, it seems like it's lower than it should be based on what they've spent the last year and right. where the industry's gone has, you know, they're, you know, a team that was always a top five payroll and often a top two or three is now what a top 10. So, you know, that trend is a little concerning and I don't quite understand why. Did you get toward the end of your tenure there or just watching the last couple of years, the sense that there is a philosophy change about spending? You know, last year they came in at 225. That was the kind of hard and fast number from what we've been told. You know, this year they're sitting around 202 and are telling teams that they're trying to move payroll before, or telling players and teams they're trying to move payroll before adding. Um, is there, in your mind, has there been that philosophy change from let's go get the best player no matter what, you know, the big signings of the past, price, you know, even guys like Sandoval and Crawford and some of these guys that didn't work out, like those big, big swings, now is it trying on their end to go a little bit cheaper and see what they can get in terms of, you know, young talent, controllable pieces? Yeah, it's hard to know. I mean, I think last time I was on your 
podcast a year ago, I talked about some changes, some swings in philosophy, you know, related to John Lester and then Mookie when it came to, you know, investing in pitching in Lester's case over 30. And then, you know, we signed David Price right. shortly after that. And then, you know, Mookie, and then they ended up, this is before they signed Devers when I talked to you last, but they ended up signing Devers to a big deal. And so there does, does by their actions, there appears to be some swings at times in philosophy. The one thing I'll say, um, getting to know John Henry over the years is what he was fairly consistent with was, I, I think in general, he's fairly, he's a smart guy who knows that the free agent market is the highest risk bet in the game, right? Like everyone knows, you know, kind of that typical aging curves of players and um, most players that reach free agency are past that curve. There are some exceptions. Devers was one of those exceptions um, if he reached free agency. So he was pretty consistently risk averse was, was how I would describe him. And so it was always up to the person in charge of baseball operations to convince him, whether that was Theo, Ben, Dave, you know, or hi, I'm the, you know, I obviously haven't worked with Craig, but I work with all those guys. It always fell on them to pound the table for the moves that they thought were the right moves to make. And you could convince John. I mean, no one in baseball is probably better than Dave Dombrowski at convincing his owners to invest mm -hmm. in the product. Um, so I don't think that's really changed. Maybe so may, leads me to speculate. Maybe the personalities of the people in charge have changed, or maybe they don't quite have that feel because they're new to the organization or it wasn't just kind of in their DNA in Dave's case. Um, I think Theo and Ben had a really good understanding because they'd been there for a while, got to know that dynamic, but you know, you're always going to have to kind of put your neck on the line for the big investments with John, which is fine. That's the job. That's why they get paid the big bucks, right? Like it's a hard job. So, you know, that's, that's the deal. I don't know if that's changed. I doubt it has, um, but maybe it has. I, I really don't know. Zach, you made reference earlier to the comment by Tom Warner at Craig Breslow's introductory press conference that the Red Sox were going to be, quote, full throttle, unquote. That is uh, the, the phrase that has resonated throughout this winter and put up against how little they've done. Uh, it, it doesn't reflect well on what Warner had vowed and how the team has uh proceeded to act uh, in the first couple of months of the off season did that serve to maybe put breslow in a tough spot maybe even a target on his back setting expectations higher than perhaps they should have been internally i think it's always risky to make those kind of statements because you can't predict market behavior very well um so you know when i heard that just the the you know, former baseball executive in me cringes, cringed a little bit because it's like, oh man, you're, and not so much for Craig, although he's obviously a part of it, but the whole organization, it's just, it's setting an expectation that maybe they'll be older. I, I believe that that's the intention. I don't, I think when Tom said that, that's how he was viewing things. What they may define as full throttle may be different than what maybe a fan defines. Um, but I just think it's setting yourself up that you've raised the bar on expectations and in a town like Boston or New York or other big, big markets where the fans care a lot, um, you know, managing expectations is really important. And I think that's kind of where, where the, the mistake was made. What would you say? And as you noted, you worked under Heim for a while with the Red Sox. You have been away from the organization for a bit and, and hasn't, haven't worked 
under Craig Breslow, but I'm wondering what sort of shifts do you notice between the two? They have some similarities, obviously, um, but how would you say that Breslow has perhaps differentiated himself in the short time he's been on the job from the way Heim approached it for his four years here? It's really hard for me to say. I mean, and, and quite honestly, I mean, I'm not locked in on the day to day like you guys are. Um, I haven't seen a lot of Craig out there. I think that's one thing I've noticed. Um, and I don't know if that's an organizational decision or just kind of more his style. I don't know kind of how, where they're at in terms of accessibility and, and those types of things. Um, I tend to believe, you know, when I went to the Mets, it was interesting. It was very different from Boston in that they actually had, and I think this was kind of a Wilpon era um, thing because I don't think that they did it. I don't think Billy Epler did this, but they would have me meet with the media the first day of every homestand, um, which was probably overkill. I actually liked it because I needed practice in that area. That was definitely something where I lacked experience. And so I welcomed it. And sure, being put out there more frequently, I, I put my foot in my mouth at least once, if not more. Um, it was a good learning experience for me. But I felt like I, I ended up liking it not just because of that, but, but I thought, hey, this is this is about the fans, you know, without them, we don't have the game. Um, the media is the, the, the conduit for the fans. So I think it's, I think it's always a good thing to make yourself available. Uh, I do tend to think that sometimes in this industry, we take ourselves very seriously. We, we, I always joke with people that we act like we work for the Pentagon and we're protecting, you know, state secrets and it's baseball. And I know as a fan, you know, growing up a Red Sox fan, i loved the transactions part of the game and roster construction that was always since i was you know 12 13 years old something that fascinated me and always want to learn more about it and, and most people when they're in those jobs don't really reveal a whole lot so you know my when i was with the mets i took a more transparent approach which again you know has its drawbacks too by maybe you put your foot in your mouth you say a little too much but not for the not for the beat writers though well i know you guys like that um yeah. or more and more and 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 you try you don't want to it's not like you're being disrespectful to your players or staff or other it's, it's really just you know i thought dave was really good at that you know dave you kind of he would tell you what we were going to do um you know he wouldn't be maybe as verbose as i might be about some things but he would he would go into it and you you he was very straightforward it was the same when you dealt with him when he was with the tigers which i always respected um and i just feel like why not why not be open um, I don't think you should put out some teams would put out like what their payroll target is. I, don't, I think that could put you in bad spots with agents and and teams when it comes to trades. But why not kind of say, hey, here's what we're looking to do. And you may not accomplish it, but this is what you're trying to do. And and kind of just be a little more open about it. I just don't think it's that big a deal. It's sports. It's entertainment. It's fun. It's a serious job and it's important. And everyone that works in baseball operations takes it seriously because it's, you know, they're competitive and they want to win. And that's what they're hired for and get paid to do. Um, so I, I just haven't seen him much. Um, you know, they had a couple, couple moves that they've made that are of significance or hasn't been a whole lot of, um, uh, public dialogue about that. So that's the only thing I've really noticed. Otherwise, you know, everything else is behind the scenes. I can't really compare the two of them they, they, you know, in some ways they're, they're very similar when I have seen them kind of talk how they talk about the game. Um, which is interesting because obviously they have very different backgrounds, he and I am. So, uh, that's been interesting to see. Zach, you consulted with the Rangers last year. You talked about that. Obviously, they won the World Series. They took some big swings in free agency. So, you know, you just said the game looks at 
free agency is the market inefficiency. Guys getting older, not always the smartest use of resources and all that. Yet you look at Texas, they took the swings on Seager, Semyon, DeGrom, which didn't work out, but Evaldi, um, you know, some of these guys that ended up being, you know, pretty important to their run. How important is free agency now? I know, you know, teams sometimes are afraid of it. There's certain guys that certain teams are not going to pursue, but um, to put a team with a young core over the top, is that kind of the, the most important thing? And, and at some point, you know, when you're close or when you have that core established, like many would argue the Red Sox do, how important is it to just kind of bite the bullet and say, all right, we're going to get three year, good years out of this guy. The next seven might be bad, but that's our window and, and we're just going to have to spend for it. Yeah, I think it is important to, you know, and I think the way you talked about it is is the way to think about it is kind of how you manage your risk based on, you know, how your roster is made up. You know, so if you have, you know, like we did when Dave came on board, we had a really good young core, um, you know, to be aggressive on the David prices and other players um, in the market made a lot of sense. J.D. Martinez, uh, because those were the pieces that we needed to kind of finish off, and make a championship run. And I think that's true of all the teams that we've had um, that have that had success in Boston or won championships in Boston. I, you know, it is, you know, it's high risk, like everyone knows that it's just the structure of you know, payroll salaries are suppressed by the system for younger players. And, you know, that allows older players to get paid um, more than, you know, maybe they would if the system didn't exist that way. So, you know, everyone kind of knows that that's how it works, but it isn't, you can't just ignore it. You can't not play. I mean, money typically does, spending does correlate with success to some degree. Um, It's obviously not a perfect correlation and there's exceptions that everyone likes to talk about, but a lot of times it does correlate. I think when you look at the Rangers, they're a perfect example of that. They saw that the, you know, over the last couple of years that they had some good young, a good young core and that they decided to invest very heavily in some big time free agents to round out the team. They have a good farm system. You know, I think that that was a very calculated move after having, you know, some real struggles um, over the previous years. And, you know, whether they thought that that was going to lead to a championship and in, in kind of two years into that plan. I don't know, but it obviously things also have to go right and everything kind of worked out. And I would say even the DeGrom, those contracts all kind of worked out when you, when you only make the playoffs by a couple games, it's easy to say, well, a lot of those guys worked out. If they're not there, they might not make it at all. Um, so yeah, I think it's important, you know, by saying it's risky doesn't mean you sit it out. Um, you really can't. Um, but yeah, you're going to make calculated risks. If you don't think your core, this is going to be the finishing pieces, then you're taking a real risk that you're going to have some dead weight at the end of those contracts. You kind of know that when you do it, so you better feel good about the rest of your roster during that period. I feel like the Red Sox right now are more involved in the trade market, and I think you know Sean and I agree, and pretty much everybody that covers the team and has been talking to them about what they're talking to people about what they're thinking believe that you know that move for a controllable starter, someone with three, four years of control, is more likely than going out and getting a Montgomery or Snell, in part because of potential payroll limitations. How hard is a move like that for a team to make because of the price you have to pay? Obviously, you were there for the sale move with a lot of prospects and a lot of other ones before that were you know, traditional buy moves, right? You know, Kimbrell, you have to send a package of prospects to another team to get a, a kind of a guy that you know a lot about and a, and a solid big leaguer. Is part of that that the team who has those prospects falls in love with their own guys perhaps a little bit more? And then also, how much does it change when 
you know, let's say a Craig Breslow comes in and can look at it from a different view than Heim Blue maybe could have as the guy who drafted and developed and who knew those guys well. Like, is that a thing that kind of comes into play? Yeah, definitely. I think um, you always have the challenge of people falling in love with their prospects. There's so much invested in them, you yeah. know, and you can almost predict like the the, the player development person is going to not want to part with anybody. <laughs> you know, I'm exaggerating, but it's hard and I get it because they've invested so much energy into those players and they have relationships with them and it makes it harder. Um, you know, the role I was in a role all, almost always with the Red Sox where I had some distance between me and, and um, you know, especially my early player. So it was a lot easier for me to kind of be cold about it and kind of purely objective. I mean, that was partly my job was to be an objective voice. Right. Um, I do think like philosophically for me, um, and I'd say, you know, a lot of the GMs I work for, you know, particularly Theo and and Dave, I'd say had kind of similar um, philosophies, which is you kind of identify the guys that are going to be a part of your core. Um, you're, you know, these are going to be our future, our long-term Red Sox players, and whether it's Mookie Betts or Jackie Bradley or whoever it may be. And that's usually a, should be a fairly small number if you're being realistic about it. And then everyone else is kind of up for discussion. Um, and that's not to devalue those players because y- you can make mistakes with that. I mean, I, when I was with the Mets, Pete Crow Armstrong was not in that core group for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I used him as a trade chip at the deadline for a rental. The big league player played very well, but, you know, since then, P- to his credit, Pete Crow Armstrong's tripled his value and is a, one of the best prospects in the game. So, you know, We'll see how he is as a big leaguer, but obviously he's increased his value a lot. And I sold relatively low because he, you know, of that kind of philosophy. So that's going to happen sometimes. I think more often than not, though, um, that'll serve you well because we see a lot more guys who don't take that leap for. I think it's rare for a player, a prospect to triple his value in that period of time. Good for him, good for the Cubs organization and their player development. But, you know, so there's a risk there too. There are all different kinds of risks that you're taking. But I do think one of the biggest things is, um, you know, and I think the Red Sox fell into this in the last few years, too, where um, you kind of hold hold your chips and it's easy to forget about those prospects when they don't ever get to the big leagues or contribute. You just kind of out of sight, out of mind for fans. But, yeah. you know, holding on to a Darwin's and Hernandez or a Jeter Downs, like some of these guys you need to turn into big league assets. And when you kind of just hold the chips, you know, that's a risk in a different way. And so those guys, some of them are going to go to zero value. Some of them may increase their value, but that that's a big risk. Just holding on to guys. It, it's safe in a lot of ways, um, but it doesn't, it's not risk free. That's for sure. Zach, you spent a long time in the Red Sox organization, as you referenced you have since gone on to work in the New York market. You've consulted for a team in the Dallas market. Uh, I'm wondering now that you have some distance and you can make some comparisons, how different is working in for a franchise in Boston versus other experiences? What, what separates Boston? We keep hearing about the passion of the fans, the media scrutiny, you witnessed it and experienced it firsthand. What separates Boston from other baseball markets when you're an executive? Well, I think it's actually evolved. Um, 
you know, and obviously I say this going back, growing up as a Red Sox fan, you know, in the suburbs of Boston, it, you know, it used to be very different. It used to be, we're waiting for the other shoe to drop. And I really think of this as all Boston, New England sports teams. I and mean, we just saw obviously Bill Belichick just retired and, you know, Brady had left before him and that era of the Patriots, you know, growing up and watching the one in 15 Patriots and to see and, and having games you couldn't watch on TV because they were blacked out because people, they couldn't sell them out to the era that just kind of wrapped up is, was incredible. And I, and I link the Patriots to this conversation because I think what changed was expectations. There was so much success with the Red Sox, with the Patriots, with you know the Celtics, the Bruins, everyone won a champ- at least one championship. And, and in the case of, um, you know, the Red Sox and Patriots, a, a lot of championships. And so, I mean, even to the point where I remember being annoyed with the Patriots, you know, someone who grew up a Patriots fan, it's like, okay, guys, like we win a world series. And like a couple months later, you guys are winning another Super Bowl. <laughs> like, you know, we couldn't even, I always joke that I feel like people forgot we win the world series in 2007. Um, it's like the one that people not mention sometimes it's like, that's one of the most satisfying ones. Cause it was a lot of homegrown talent. Um, but I think that changed a lot. So I actually think the Boston market of today is very different and more difficult because, you know, I kind of joke like some, somewhere along the line, we, my people, the Red Sox fans we became Yankees fans, right? This expectation that if you don't win a championship, you're a failure. Um, now that said, I was I was there riding the roller coaster with the Red Sox too that we you know would win and then be in last place. I mean it's been kind of crazy how up and down the organization's been and I was a part of that problem um you know during those years but I think that's a little harder. I think so there's always been the intensity and the love of the game and I and I, and I remember when we had David Wells who obviously had played for the Yankees and he just said Boston's a very difficult place to play because in New York it's so big they have Broadway stars and movie stars and probably rock stars. And, you know, it's just such a big city. And like and 10 Bo- pro teams across the sports, too. <laughs> right. And they're splitting the market a bunch. of And then in Boston, it's just so much more of a fishbowl. And people are so intense. I mean, he'd say, I used to ride my bike around Manhattan all the time. I ride my bike in Boston and I'm getting stopped like 10 every 10 feet. And that always resonated with me and stood out as the difference. You know, it's hard because I grew up there to know to think about it that way, but it's like, oh, you know, you're right. Like those are our stars are, you know, obviously Tom Brady, but the the athletes were the big stars in Boston. And I think that's just a different, you don't really have that in a lot of cities. I think Philly's comparable in that way to some degree. Um, I actually thought the Mets fans would be similar to pre 04 Red Sox fans um, where they felt like, you know, the other shoe's always going to drop. Everything always goes wrong for us. It's been so long since we won, although not nearly as long. Um, When I got there, it was, there was definitely some of that. This kind of um, woe is me, but there was also this anger about it. (laughs) Like they were just more pissed off about it than pre-04 Red Sox fans. And so um, they were kind of like a combination of Red Sox and Phillies fans, probably. There's, a lot of frustration in the fan base now, obviously, given three last place finishes in the last four years. And I think when fans look back at the Heim Bloom era, one of the <clears throat> excuse me, one of the things they have difficulty trying to evaluate uh, from the outside is what is baseball ops responsible for, and what is ownership dictating? People speculated that there were 
hard and fast budgets imposed on Bloom from ownership. Other people thought he wanted to do it a more efficient way and could have spent more money and didn't. So from your experience, talk a little bit, if you would, about the involvement on a day-to-day basis from ownership, at least as you recount it. And we know that you've been gone a few years and maybe that's evolved, maybe it hasn't. But what was what was the interaction like between baseball ops and ownership during your time there? Yeah, I mean, I was never in the top seat, so it's always different for that person than it would be for you know anyone else. Um, but I have talked to people who were in that seat about it over the time that I was there. And since I left, um, especially when I was with the Mets, I would ask, I remember asking Ben Charrington about kind of how often he interacted um, with ownership in Boston. Um, you know, I worked for Steve Cohen who, you know, we started, I started every day with a phone call from Steve and we talk about kind of things before, before the market opened and he had to get to his trader desk cause he still trades. Um, so, you know, and it was interesting to talk to Ben because he said, you know, it's not, it's not, you know, John isn't someone that's calling me out, wasn't calling me all the time, but the difference in Boston is at the time when, you know, Larry was, Lucino was still, um, CEO, um, he had three people that would be engaged with Tom and, and Larry, and maybe even Mike Gordon. I, I don't know. You know, so there was always multiple people, which I think is different. It definitely was different from my one year experience in New York. Um, and so he's like, you know, and they're very different. So you kind of had to talk to people very differently. But what I'll say is one thing I've always thought about John and what made him a, what made him a good owner when I was there was that he hired someone to do that job. And then he let them do that job. He didn't, um, you know, he, if you, like I said, you, you had to convince him that this was the right thing, but if you did, he'd do it, you know? And I think there's no better example of that than, um, you know, Dave Dombrowski with Chris sale, the Chris sale contract, which obviously didn't work out. So, you know, I'm not saying this to, to, to make a negative statement about Dave. It's a, these decisions don't always work out, but you know, that was something that fell right into kind of the typical, you know, similar to what I mentioned about John Lester where like, this is a scary proposition, to John with any pitcher of that age, especially one that, you know, hadn't thrown a ball in a while because he had an injury and it was like, oh, should we see him pitch first? You know, and Dave felt like, well, that's why we're going to get an opportunity to get a below market deal um, if we do it now. And we feel pretty good. The medical prognosis is good. We feel pretty good about it. And, you know, Dave had to pound the table to do that. But ultimately, you know, John's response was, well, I hired you to do this job. If I'm not going to listen to you, why would I have president of baseball operations. So I always respected that about John is that he hires someone to do the job. He's going to let them do the job if they feel strongly about things. Um, he's not going to kind of really come to you with a lot of suggestions on how to, how to do the job. Um, you know, he wants to be involved. He's a smart guy. He's going to ask good questions. Um, but ultimately he's going to let you do the job. And then yes, he's going to hold you accountable to those decisions that you make over some period of time. In the Red Sox case, it hasn't been a long period of time for the last few guys, but it's you know, I, I think that's how he's operated, and I respected the way he's operated. Whether that's changed, I don't know. I mentioned before, budgets were removing target most of the time that I was there. So this idea that, you know, there Haim had hard numbers, maybe he did. I don't, I was only there for the 2020 season, which was a, you know, a, obviously a unique season. Um, we also had different expectations. You know, Haim was coming in. We thought it was kind of, you know, it was pretty clear we were taking a step back before we could take a step forward. Um, so it was just a different environment. We weren't going to, you know, it wasn't going to be an aggressive spending situation. 
So that was different. So I, I can't really say whether Hyam was given numbers. One thing I've wondered, you know, and I have no knowledge of this, but we used to have conversations for years. I'd have conversations. I remember talking about kicking this around with Jed Hoyer years ago about this idea that if your owner said you have just to use a number, you have $300 million for baseball operations. That's major league payroll. That's for minor league players. That's your staffing. That's any investments you want to make in data technology, whatever it is, that's what you have. Figure out how you want to allocate it. However you believe to be the right way to allocate it. We never did that. It was always kind of, and most teams keep it separate, like your operations budget and your um, player payroll budget. But that was what we always talked about. And I remember, you know, I am talking about how it seemed to be more like that in Tampa, uh, where it was just kind of like, hey, we have, this is how much we have overall baseball ops. And then they make choices. And obviously in Tampa, they invested heavily in their analytics department and, you know, infrastructure and have, you know, they'd have one of the highest head counts in baseball operations in the whole game, um, the largest analytics team. And they chose to do that because of the return on that investment relative to, you know, $3 million you may spend on a, on a reliever. You know, they figured we could get one of our young players to perform similarly, if not better than that $3 million investment. So we'd rather allocate that money towards infrastructure. So, which I think makes a lot of sense, especially for the raise. So what I've always wondered and have no clue, this is just me thinking kind of out loud is, did that change with the Red Sox? Did, did, you know, I saw, you know, they obviously dramatically increased the size of their staff. They've hired a lot more analytics folks and, and a lot of people probably in player development as well. Um, all investments, which, you know, I like, I think you do get a good return on those investments typically. And they're obviously a much lower scale than major league payroll, but did that affect pay, major league payroll? I don't know. I've wondered that if they kind of just shifted resources, if they ever went to that model of saying, Hey, here's your money. Do you tell us how to spend it? Um, and maybe that's what happened. I don't know. Um, I think what's tricky about that. And this was something that when like Jed and I would brainstorm about these types of things was if you go in that direction, it's hard to kind of change, change gears. Cause once you invest in it's a lot easier to hire people than it is to move on from people. Not that they should move on from people, but if you do kind of reallocate money to a different area, and then decide that, you know, bring in a new boss and they want to go in a different direction. How that may be hard to do. And which, so again, it's all speculation, but it's kind of the, the types of theoretical things I, I think about a lot. When you were with the club for most of that time, they would have four assistant general managers in baseball ops. Uh, you were one of those with sort of analytics as your bailiwick or, or specialty. There are now four assistant GM, some new, including one that was only revealed in the past week with Paul Taboni being promoted to that role. We hear that title thrown around, and just like from the outside, we don't always know how ownership is interacting. I'm wondering if you could give us a sense of what does an assistant GM do on a daily basis? And obviously, as we noted, there are different specialties or areas right. of expertise for different people. Eddie Romero has... Uh, uh, has great contacts in the international community and scouting. You were analytics. Mike Groupman is now sort of that analytics guy. But <clears throat> talk a little bit about what the dynamics like in terms of the assistant GMs working under a baseball ops president. Sure. Yeah, I think it's changed over time. Um, as front offices have gotten very large, you know, over the 20 years, that I've been in, in the industry, you know, it was a much smaller shop when I started. 
uh, much flatter hierarchy because of that. When you grow exponentially in size and headcount uh, throughout the industry, I mean, the average, just as an example, the average baseball team has 23 people working in research and development. So that's analytics, software development, data engineering, things like that, um, you know, compared to the next highest sport, which is basketball at five. Um, so it's, that's kind of an a, a indicator that that's happened. Player, you know, player development's obviously huge in baseball. A lot of you know, football doesn't have player development. They have college, you know, college is their player development. So it's just, it's a huge scope of an operation. And then you add a whole lot of people into it. So what ended up happening and what I believe the evolution is to kind of having more, way more assistant GMs than there used to be is that there was just, it was a management issue. You had to start creating more management jobs to deal with this volume of people. And then it became, well, the day-to-day is such a grind even more than normal that we're not thinking, we're not investing enough time to think strategically about the game. So a lot of the assistant GM positions, at least in my experience, are the strategic thinkers for the, you know, with the general manager or the president or however that's structured. And now, you know, a lot of teams do this dual president GM or chief baseball officer GM structure. Um, and that's really, in my mind, de- designed to allow at least one of those people to be more on the strategic side of things and the other person to handle a lot of the day-to-day kind of fires that need to be put out, especially during the season. So, you know, to speak to the assistant GM's role specifically, you know, in my case, you usually have a couple areas where you have oversight. So for me with the Red Sox, it was first, it was just analytics. Then, you know, under Haim, it was analytics and pro scouting or what we call kind of the pro acquisition group. And I think Mike Groupman does the same thing now. Um, when I went to the Mets first as the assistant GM, it was analytics and player development, which was an exciting opportunity for me, but because I had never had that opportunity to, to kind of strategically build a player development department. Um, so what that means is, you know, your, your directors of those departments are the day-to-day people that are reporting to you. Um, and you're just coming up with a vision really for how those things are going to run with sign off, obviously, obviously from, from above, from the boss, the GM or the, or the president or whatever it may be. Um, and then, you know, you're making sure that you're executing on that plan. Um, and so there's touch points with those day-to-day leaders. Um, and you're kind of making sure we've, kind of collaborated and worked together to come up with a good vision for how we want player development or scouting or analytics to work within the organization, how we want everything to be integrated. So we all get the benefit of, you know, we're going to have an analytics group that's going to do a lot of good work, but we got to make sure it's actually benefiting the organization by making players better or making us better at acquiring players. And so that's your job at the top of that to make sure that part's happening. So you're as an assistant GM, you're obviously close to the most, the top decision maker in the organization. So you know what they need and you have to make sure everything that's happening under the hood is positively impacting the things at the top. Zach, to end here, something we touched on earlier a little bit, um, but something that I found interesting, as you mentioned, or as I mentioned in the open near your Twitter at Zach Scott Sports, you talked about you know, starting a podcast. I know that's something you want to do to kind of peel back the curtain for fans. And of course, as media members, we, we love and appreciate that. And, um, I think, you know, Sean and I were talking last night, we have, and you used the Pentagon reference, the last few days, or the last few weeks, we have been trying to figure out who the third base coach for the Boston Red Sox is going to be. It's really down to like two people on the staff. It's an internal hire. And asking anybody in the organization is like asking for their social security number, <laughs> bank pin number and more. 
Uh, and, you know, another example, we talked about, sure, Sean mentioned Paul Tavoni being um, promoted to assistant GM. The confirmation process on something like that, which was already restrict- already reflected in the staff directory on the team site, it was tough to get a confirmation on even something like that for a while the other night. Like, this culture of silence and uh, if we leak this out or we say this, is this going to be a competitive disadvantage? You touched on it, but but why is that such a thing? And why won't they just tell us who the third base coach is, for example? <laughs> well, I can't help you with the third base, which I have no yeah, idea. Yeah, I but... know. Too bad. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I don't know. I think a lot of times it's unintentional. It's it's really – so I think there's two things. I think, one, when you're hiring people, there's a respect that you want to pay to the candidates, right? So if they haven't – made that decision yet but they know who it's going to be or they're feeling like it's probably going to be this person of those two third base coach candidates well out of respect to the other candidate they need to finish the process before they make something public so there's a part of that too right trades the same thing i always thought it was important that you know people don't put something out there about a trade until the players have been informed because it's just really awful when a player finds out through Twitter or whatever it may be that that's how that they're getting traded. I think that sucks. And that's not how the organization ever wants it to go. So that's, you know, there's a practical reason to kind of keep things quiet till the right moment. Mm -hmm. But then there's just this, this kind of, sometimes it's a, it's a paranoia. I mean, I know some people that have worked at organizations where, you know, the GM is investing time in like hunting down leaks or like playing games where they're putting out false information to some of their own people to see who leaks that. And then they can tie it back to that. Like, that's insane to me. You know, I've, I feel like at times it's like, these things are out of our control. Who cares? What's the worst thing that can happen if you need to, you know, clean something up because a player found it out through the media, like that sucks, but you just have the conversation. You'd be honest and, you know, authentic with them about it and say, Hey, this isn't what we wanted to happen. Here's what happened. I'm sorry about it. You know, that sort of thing. Um, but I think a lot of it's unintentional. They're just doing their jobs. It's a grind. They have their head down. I find this as a consultant, you know, just even getting people to kind of be responsive and have the conversations that I know they want to have um, about making the organization better. They just, you know, think like they hurt their heads down. They're doing their jobs and they think it's only been a couple of days, but it's been a couple of weeks sort of thing. And I think that happens with this stuff as well. The one exception that a, a person I work for, it's a style thing too. So, so Dave was amazing because he, wanted to put stuff out to the media ASAP. So if you promoted Paul Taboni, he'd want to put out a press release right away about that, which I actually really liked because um, a lot of times we would promote a bunch of people or hire some people. And we just kind of have this mindset of like, well, it's just easier and cleaner to put out one press release about mm-hmm. everything than piecemeal, which I get, I understand. But at the same time, it, it creates like this awkward thing where, I mean, there were some moves, promotions made before, even like right when I got to the Mets that we didn't didn't tell the media about for for months, and I didn't really understand it, and it was strange because those people were clearly acting in those roles, but we didn't announce that they were in those roles, and it was out of my control because I and I just rolled with it; it was fine. But um, I don't get it. It's like let's just put it out there. It, it makes it easier on that person that they don't have to hide what's going on with them. And and to me, that's how I would look at it is like, what's best for the individual who cares if we have to put out four press releases that explain this. Um, and then you have, that's obviously a mistake that you're putting it on your masthead on, on your website like that. I'm assuming that's not what baseball ops wanted to happen. Um, but yeah, I, 
I think people there's like almost overthinking that goes on with that. And I always appreciated that about Dave that he was just like, you know, almost sometimes it was like stressful. He wanted to put out things so fast and it was like, let us dot the I's and cross the T's first. <laughs> um, and, and, but at the same time, I respected that. He's just like, let's just get it out there and then we can, you know, kind of move forward. We've checked all the boxes on the process and let's move forward. Uh, you know, like the greatest example of that being everybody was paranoid and terrified that if a team admitted that they were in on Shohei Otani, then he was going to cross them off the list. Dave Roberts comes out and says, we met with them. Yeah. They still offered 700 million. I know not really, but in, in right. year to year baseball terms, but like him saying that didn't have any bearing on the process at all. Yeah. In a way, I was happy that that's where he signed because Dave Roberts, who's someone I admire and respect a lot, I f was getting beat up for that and by the fans. And it sounded like maybe even by internally. Right. Um, and I get it. If that is truly the message that the agent sent sending to you, then I get it. If that's part of, I don't understand why that would be part of the parameters. Like let's, again, let's not take ourselves too seriously, but if that's what it is and they have the reasons for it and you want the player, I get it. Okay. This is part of their parameters. Let's follow in line. But as you said, clearly it didn't really matter. Um, there are other factors that led to his decision. Last thing for you. And I know that it's this, not sure exactly where you are in the process, but just your idea of having a podcast so you don't have to uh, come on with guys like us and you can you can kind of tell your own story. But what is your your vision for that and what do you want that to be? Well, it's evolving. Um, you know, I'm going into it. First of all, I don't, you know, I, I don't know what the hell I'm doing in this space, but I'm going to do my give it my best. You, you, shot. you have the microphone, so that's a good start. <laughs> I've got some equipment. Yeah. Um, I, you know, that stuff's been interesting and fun. It's actually been really fun trying to figure these things out. Um, but I'm excited to get rolling because I think I'll learn as I go. But the idea really is a few things. I want to put out something that, you know, as I said earlier, as a fan, I really enjoyed the transactions part of baseball. It was one of the things that was appealing about baseball is there's so many roster moves, there's so many trades, it's free agency is always exciting or usually exciting. And, um, you know, but you never got really insight in how it worked. And that was part of what drew, you know, was a, the draw for me to, to actually get into baseball was kind of wanting to be a part of behind the scenes. So to peel back that curtain and try to do it in a way that doesn't, I hope I don't unintentionally piss off a lot of people by doing that. That's not my intent. I just want it to be interesting to fans and, you know, people that may want to work in sports, but I also more broadly, you know, as a consultant that tries to help sports teams get better, you know, I hope there's some things that I can, you know, get guests to open up about and talk a little bit about. That's going to be a challenge, especially if they're working currently for a club. Um, and it's not going to just be about baseball. It's going to be all sports, but to talk kind of strategically about, you know, where things that they've learned along the way, lessons learned from experiences in the past, where they may see things going in the future with the game. Um, and hopefully those lessons learned are things that apply to, you know, other types of businesses, because they often do, I find. And also, you know, just people in life trying to better themselves. You know, a lot of my education to become a leader uh, was done on my own. And a lot of that was through podcasts and books and just doing my own research, because it's something in sports that you don't really get taught. You don't get taught how to become a leader. You just kind of have to pick it up or have it naturally be who you are. Um, and I think that's a mistake and an opportunity. But so I think, you know, and that's where I spent a lot of time. I love podcasts and most of them were not sports related. So I do hope to do something that's interesting from a sports standpoint, but also, you know, there's some takeaways 
um, that are applicable to other areas to get people kind of thinking about how to better themselves and how to better their business or whatever it may be. We look forward to that as long as you drop episodes on the days that the Fenway rundown does not run, of course. But that's Zach Scott. We appreciate the time as always, Zach. Thank you very much. Thanks again to Zach Scott for coming on today for his second Fenway Rundown appearance. I believe that ties him for the record, though I have to look at the the logs to see if that's the case. It's like we'll keeping be... track of who's hosted Saturday Night Live the most. That's right. Same audience reach, too. Um, next week will be actually a busy one for the Red Sox, even if they don't make transactions. The rookie development program is in town. We'll have that covered on Wednesday. And then the town hall free winter weekend in Springfield on Friday and Saturday. Mass Live will have hashtag team coverage from that. Sean, how do the good people get uh, an inside look at all of that and more next week? They do so by joining our insider text program, Chris, which is simple to do. Just text the word join to 617-751-6257 and then click the link to subscribe. We give you a free 14-day trial period, and then it's only $4.99 a month after that. It's an opportunity to supply questions, which we will read and ask on the podcast, but also reacting to Red Sox news, asking us specific questions, getting our take on your trade proposals, whatever it is you want to send along. Simple, fun, a lot of people are enjoying it. We are too. This has been the Fenway Rundown, brought to you by Mass Live.